0: Well, I hope you had a day filled with love and romance and all those sorts of things, because with the text, a text like Isaiah 58, on a day like Ash Wednesday, things are going to get pretty dark pretty fast. And I'm here, possibly a new face to some of you, and probably an unfamiliar face to most of you, to, uh, well, I'm I'm assigned tonight with a magnificently grim text to tell a room full of more or less religious people what it is that they've gotten wrong about their religion. So, thank you, Alistair, for assigning this text to me. I've always had a, a way with giving bad first impressions, so, what's more, step, one more step in that direction? Happy Valentine's Day to everyone here. If you're new here, if you're visiting, we're happy that you came. I hope you come again. We're not always like this, I promise. But Isaiah 58 isn't all about casting shade. You might have gathered from the reading of the passage that it's definitely a rough and tumble text. It doesn't play particularly nice with others, and it certainly doesn't pull any punches. But the chapter is, in fact, you might have noticed, couched with delight language. So imagine that, one of the premier passages in the entire Bible on fasting, that is, giving something good up for a given period of time for more or less religious reasons, fronted and followed by what could be translated in the Hebrew as exquisite delight. That's the word used. This isn't exactly the first thing that comes to mind when we're confronted with the possibility of giving up our half-sweet almond milk lattes or gourmet vegan donuts or whatever, But we should be warned that not even Isaiah's talk about delight or pleasure-seeking is of the good sort. And, in fact, if we're honest, most of it isn't. So we're kind of back under the shade here. But it's important to realize, right on the front end of looking at Isaiah 58, that that the text functions as an intra-community critique. This is not a criticism of one religion from the perspective of another, and it is also not a criticism of irreligion or of anti-religion from the perspective of the religious. Rather, it's a hold-nothing-back criticism of the perspectives and practices of a religious community precisely from within that religious community, exposing, in no uncertain terms, their own self-serving and self-contradicting religious activity in a way that would warm Richard Dawkins' heart. But this really does bear repeating that this criticism comes from an insider. This would not be like somebody from, from Toronto complaining to a Vancouverite that they don't like living here because of how gloomy the winters get. It would be someone from Vancouver telling a Vancouverite that they don't like living here because of how gloomy the winters get. My point is this. If you're not a Christian, or if you're exploring Christianity, you can rest easy. You're welcome here. This criticism is not against you. It is a criticism of the religious coming from the religious. And for that reason, you might even, you know, lean in a little bit here. You might even find you agree with it. So the passage begins with the prophet Isaiah being told to cry aloud, to hold nothing back. That's what he says, don't hold back. So this is like a big, loud cry. And he says, trumpet, lift up your voice like a trumpet. It's that kind of crying. And what he's supposed to cry is he's supposed to declare to God's people their sins. That's verse 1, if you're, if you're following along in your Bible. But the sins of the people of God that this prophet is supposed to be declaring are surprising. They're not the kind of sins that you would expect a prophet to be you know, reaming against or anything like that. The sins are, are, are this right here. They seek God daily, and they delight to know God's ways. Scandalous. This isn't the average sin material. And yet we're meant to hear a sort of note of astonishment when we're reading this. The Hebrew is emphatic. It gives the sense that God is saying through Isaiah, "...me they seek, of all things me." That's the sort of idea that you you get from the Hebrew text. But yet, it gets worse. Not only are they just uh, seeking God daily or delighting, oh my goodness, but it gets worse than that. They are also asking God for righteous judgments. And they're delighting to draw near to God. This is the thing that the prophet is supposed to be going on about. A very strange sort of sins to be doing, to be talking about. But what makes these religious acts scandalous to God is that the people are doing them, I'm quoting here from verse 2, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, and as if they were a nation that did not forsake God's judgments. One commentator on on the book of Isaiah put it this way, quote, These are persons who are very serious about their religion. They look very much like a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the justice of God. But like is the key word. To be like such a nation and to be such a nation is not the same thing. And as the succeeding verses show, they are not such a nation. In other words, they're acting as though they're something they're not. Their religion was a show. It was a show that they were very serious about, but it was still a show. It was a pretense, a game of smoke and mirrors. But we probably shouldn't be thinking along the lines of intentional, malicious deceit. You know, As if they're doing something that surely none of us here would ever do or be caught doing. On the contrary, we have every reason to believe that they really were seeking God daily, and they really were delighting to know his ways. That they really were asking God for his righteous judgments and delighting to draw near to him. That's how the prophet Isaiah presents them to us, and we have no good reason to doubt it. But, they apparently didn't catch the irony of their actions, They were delighting to know God's ways, but they weren't walking in those ways themselves. They were asking for God's judgments, but they weren't weren't doing righteousness. They were asking for God's righteous judgments. There's a play on words in the Hebrew. They were asking God for his righteous judgments, those two things, but they weren't doing righteousness, and they were shirking or, or forsaking his judgments. This isn't as hard, as hard to imagine or, or to, to, to see ourselves in this kind of situation. Say you particularly love how forgiving God is to you and how forgiving he has been to you in your life. It might be the favorite thing that you get to sing about on Sunday mornings. And say you even ask God to show this great forgiveness to the world around you. But say that you are neglecting to be a forgiving person. You are neglecting to embody the very thing that you love and to embody the very thing that you are praying for on the day to day. You may still very well be delighting in God's forgiveness, truly and sincerely. But it may evoke a different response from God than you'd expect. But now I've given the game away, because this is exactly what the text goes on to explain. The people in the passage, which is Isaiah, probably post-exilic, probably, uh, for whoever uh, knows what I'm getting on about there. Um, But probably post-exilic, these people are are fasting, they're humbling themselves, but they're complaining that God hasn't responded to them in the way that they thought that he would. And God tells him, in the very next verse, this is verse 3, exactly why he hasn't. He says that when they were fasting, they were seeking their own pleasure, or they were seeking their own business, is another possible translation. We're going to find out why. And they were oppressing all their workers. Strange choice of words. The picture that the prophet's painting for us here is very likely that of a business owner. That's the idea, the kind of parable that's going on here. There's a business owner abstaining from work on the Sabbath, and therefore abstaining from making profit on the Sabbath. But he is still requiring his employees to work, even when he won't. He's a religious man. He's so serious about his religion that he will refuse to work on the Sabbath. He's a good man, a righteous man. But, you know, he's a man of principle is the idea. We we might say that he's a man of principle. But he doesn't appear to appreciate the irony of forcing other people to do his dirty work for him as it were, you know, it's not bad, but he, he, he doesn't appear to appreciate the irony of forcing his workers to work on the Sabbath in order to make his money for him when he won't. His fasting, fasting, unsurprisingly, results in so much fighting and quarreling that Isaiah suggests that this must be the real reason he's fasting for in the first place. He's only really doing this to get a rise out of his workers. And then, we're asked by by God through the voice of Isaiah, are we really to expect this to be the sort of fasting, this to be the sort of religion, this to be the sort of Lent, for that matter, that God has chosen for his people? A sort of self-inflicted, self-focused humility that looks no further than one's own fasting, one's own religion, one's own Lent? The implied answer, if anybody's wondering, is no. No. It may look and it may feel spiritual or religious to do this sort of thing, but it is not, Isaiah says, acceptable to God, That's verse 5. Rather, he says, is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? It is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? There's an irony there. You're, you're withstanding from bread, but you're giving bread out. You're sharing your bread that you're not having. We're going to get back to that. It's, it's to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house. And when you see the naked, to cover him or her and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, your own kin, your relatives. This is later explained in verse 10 as pouring yourself out for the hungry, are the words that he uses. Or turning away from seeking your own pleasure, your business, on the Sabbath. Isaiah is here virtually redefining for Israel what it means to fast. It doesn't have mainly to do with restriction or restraint. It has to do with freedom. Fasting is not mainly about withholding something from ourselves, it is mainly about giving something to others. It is not mainly about bringing ourselves down low, it's about lifting others up. For example, if you were to fast from coffee, or if you're a tea person or whatever, for Lent, you wouldn't just be going without coffee or tea or whatever. That's not the point. You'd still be making coffee. You'd still be buying coffee. But you'd be giving it away to somebody else instead. That's the idea. This is why fasts, fasts, that are done with the secret intention of saving your money or of, of making your body you know, get into better shape or, or even of improving your spiritual life without reference to the good of other people, are not really fasts at all in this Isaiahic, redefined sense. It's just simply not the sort of fasting that God has called his people to do. St. Paul would call this self-made religion in Colossians, and St. James would call it false religion. Of course, we probably couldn't press that example too far as if there's some sort of principle of give unto others what you withhold from yourself. Uh, it, it doesn't quite work if, you know, in a one-to-one sort of example. Otherwise, we might end up being a community of people seeking to bring late-night Netflix to the world or something like that. But you get the general idea. Isaiah's message is important to hear, and it's also difficult to hear because we're myopic creatures, you and I. Christians no less than anyone else. We're quick to make our spirituality, our religion, mainly about us, without realizing the irony of that. But Isaiah is here to tell us that true spirituality and true religion is not about our own business or about our own fulfillment or our own pleasure, but that of others. True religion, by definition, or at least by redefinition, is about the good that it brings to the wider world. Isaiah insists, if you just read through his prophecy, it's a bit of a long and heavy read, but if you read through his prophecy, he insists time and again, it's like a refrain that he keeps on getting back to, almost like in an orchestra, you know, in a piece, that one refrain that they keep on coming back to and developing. He keeps on coming back to this idea that, that God's people exist to be a light to the nations. It's the language that he uses. A light to the nations. The redemption of God's people, according to Isaiah, is for the redemption of God's planet. So if we were to find ourselves doing all the right religious things that a Christian ought to do, but it is at the expense of other people, Christian or otherwise, Isaiah would challenge us in stronger terms than I'm Comfortable using to reconsider the genuineness of our religion. If the light within us is darkness, how great is that darkness? To quote a certain famous person. Isaiah repeats this point three times throughout the remainder of the text. Every time that he explains the sort of fasting or later on the sort of Sabbath-keeping, he, he right away explains or describes the certain divine response to that fasting or to that Sabbath-keeping. And he says this, If you do you know, such and such, if you do it this way and for this reason, not for your own pleasure, not for your own sake, but for that of others, like, like we have been seeing, then, quote, shall your light break forth like the dawn, Or another quote, just a bunch of phrases that he uses here. Your righteousness shall go before you. God's glory shall be your rear guard. This is Exodus language, talking about the people in the wilderness. God is with them in this sort of a way, becoming God's people. God himself will be with you. Great promise of Leviticus. Then, this is another, that's the first time that he develops it. Later he says, Then shall your light rise out of the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. You're going to be like a watered garden, an unfailing spring. It's Eden language from Genesis 3. You're going to be a rebuilt ruin and a restored city with foundations for generations yet to come. And again, he says, and then, if you do such and such, then you shall truly take delight, exquisite delight, in the Sabbath, and then later, in the Lord, and you shall receive the inheritance promised to Jacob. But pay close attention, you might have caught there, how Isaiah's argument is working. It's circular, isn't it? It borders on the inconsistent and even the incoherent, if you think about it. Don't do this or that for your own sake, because if you don't, all this great stuff is going to happen for you. Isaiah appears to be appealing to our own self-interest in order to convince us not to do things out of our own self-interest. But this would be to misunderstand the things said to come about as a response to the fasting and Sabbath-keeping that God has truly chosen. Each of them, if you take a good, hard, long look, each of them, in fact, correspond rather nicely with the self-giving and others-oriented fasting that they reward. They have to do with the vocation of God's people, first given to Adam, passed on through Abraham to Israel, and then fulfilled at last in Jesus to be implemented in his people through his Spirit to serve and to keep God's world, to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to all peoples, and ultimately to renew all things for the glory of God. So, Isaiah 58 isn't all about casting shade after all. It's about shining a light in that darkness. It's about doing what humans were made to do. So I might conclude now by just pointing out the obvious. Fasting, or at least Isaiah's redefinition of fasting, has a distinctly Christological shape. It smells like Jesus. Second, to, uh, Second Corinthians, sorry. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Or in Philippians 2, 5-7, to Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, something for him to exploit, but rather he emptied himself and became a servant. This sort of Christ shape to the fasting of Isaiah 58 probably shouldn't surprise us too much. Because, I mean, Isaiah 53, that one other chapter from Isaiah that's famous, that's well known, It is just a few chapters before our text here. So it's worth to remember what's said beforehand, just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the so-called suffering servant is despised and rejected. He bears the grief of his people and pours himself out to the point of death in order that others might live. This is what true fasting echoes And it's what Lent remembers and embodies. This is something that we can really take delight in. But let's not be too quick to forget what Isaiah has to say about delighting in God's ways without also walking in them too. So, let's delight in the gospel together and let's join God in it for the sake of our city and for the sake of his world.